0: We are the image of God. That is, we are his physical representatives so that we can rule over creation on his behalf.
1: The Bible is made for this. Like it talks about supernatural entities that are real, that, that aren't imaginary. And I think the church has
2: to wake up to this. Do you think that whenever she came out of the water, the water that there was a, a, a demon came out of her? it's like I can understand that because our human nature is to you know take the blessings that God gives us and then forget about them tomorrow. There is an intelligence at war against them and I think what I'm
1: suggesting is that there are still intelligences that we're at war against. I really like what Dr. Michael Heiser said a lot is that God's God's desire is to dwell with
2: mankind forever. All of the nations in the world have been assigned a particular overseeing guardian to watch over them and but that in particular the nation of israel has been designated to be solely god's chosen nation
0: the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone
1: but our enemy has not laid down their arms their power is broken Christ is King, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, mighty and awesome.
2: I was at one time the fastest sword driller uh, in the county.
1: Hello my friends and welcome to the Two Trees Podcast. I'm John Dillon, and I'm here with Rosemary. Hi, everybody. And with Martin. Hey, all. The finest of friends. They're all here. We were hoping to have Jacob with us today, but he's doing pastory things. And so it had to cancel. Otherwise, he may storm in here in a minute and demand a microphone, but uh, he won't be allowed because he's late. Yeah, he'll have to earn it back at this That's point. Right, he's, at this point. And we have to app. share
0: the heater with him, and I'm not going to do that. If You're, late, you're not you going to share just, the heater? I am not sharing the heater. It's cold in here,
2: to be she honest. She already yeah. revoked it from me, no, and I, I was turned here it, on time. I turned
0: it towards you just a little bit. So. so
1: we meet in Jacob's Barn out here, which is great in the summertime and not fun in the wintertime. And we try to warm up, but the one time we were in the heater, you guys didn't like it, and so you were like, freeze, because... Because so that's what we're doing. And uh, no, we appreciate you guys. We try to, to, to give you guys good sound, but you've got to realize we have no idea what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We plug in stuff and lights come on and we hope that that means we're recording. Yep. Uh, yep. And so it, every time we do this, there is a lot of uh, silent intercessory prayer uh, dear Jesus, <laughs> please help uh, and let this work. But uh, really, that's our goal. We're trying to we're trying to serve Jesus. Mm-hmm. We want the Lord to be honored and glorified through what we're doing. And I've been really enjoying getting to talk about the Gospels and mm-hmm. really getting a chance to uh, to get into the Jesus story.
2: And you know, John talking about a, a good sound producing a good sound. I, I know you won't pat yourself on the back, so I kind of would like to listening to that intro again, the new one for our new season. It's amazing how many people have been a part of this podcast. Like when we first started it in the cabin down at your church and in the freezing cold, again, I guess we just like to do this when it's cold outside. Um, But now to see where it's all gone, all these different places and everything, all these people that have been involved with it. And that's what really makes sense to me. If you go to the Facebook page, we're over 700 members on there and people are talking back and forth. And I love reading all of them. John reads every single one and responds to them, you know, really fast with everything. So, if you're ever nervous about getting a hold of us or anything, just just do it. I mean, we want to hear from you and like John said, we have no idea what we're doing. It's we, true. We just have the, the have, courage to stand up here and talk into the mic. Yeah, we have upwards of 10 <laughs> listeners,
1: and, uh, and so we're kind of a big deal at this point, point. and so very excited about that. Uh, no, I love when I get to hear from you guys. I love knowing, hey, I'm reading this, or I got a question about this, mm-hmm. and it's really fun to get to be part of your lives and to minister uh, outside of my usual bubble of people that I run into and I, I really am thanking the Lord for being able to have friends like you guys who are mm-hmm. willing to come out and talk with me about these things. Absolutely. And so it's it's fun. So if you've got questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. If you want to leave us a uh, an, an Apple review, that would be a huge blessing to me. Uh, I love those, and, and the more we get, the better the algorithms. Thir- th- 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 <laughs> the better the algorithms work for us, and it gets the podcast out there. But I'm always shocked to see where it went, mm-hmm. and to be like, man, Lord. Who out there speaks English? <laughs> and you know, it's amazing, you know, that we were able to take the gospel and talk about these topics with people that I've never met. And so, if you're out there, I'm super blessed mm-hmm. that you're giving your time to listen to us. Absolutely, because there's tons of awesome content out there, and I know your time is valuable. And so, it means a lot to us that you're willing to to chat with us and to engage. But uh, we are talking about the gospels, in particular. We're digging into content, context for the content. Because the Gospels are awesome. You can read them and get this really clear picture of the message and life of Jesus. But the more you read them, the more you realize there's a lot going on in every one of these Gospels.
0: Do you, uh, do you have a favorite Gospel? I do. Either of you. Ooh, what is it? I like Mark. Okay, because it's action-packed? It's
1: action-packed. Okay. It's fast.
0: It's a guy's Gospel.
1: It's, uh, I like it. It's, mm-hmm. it's my favorite of them, yeah. Uh, John is probably the most beautiful... Uh, Matthew is the one with the most head-scratching moments, and Luke just makes sense. Um, and so of the ones that I'm reading there, that's
2: that's kind of my take on it. What that.
0: about you, Martin? Do you have a favorite gospel?
2: Well, Luke was my favorite growing up because before Christmas, Dad would always read the Christmas story out of oh, Luke yeah. 2. See, that gives me anxiety. And that way we knew presents were coming. But as Aww. now I'm older and stuff, I still would remain with Luke because as John was saying, it's probably the most logically correct. My,
1: my parents weaponized the, the Luke story. like, <laughs> like they, you could chapter 3 if you until, don't like, you know, They were done reading it, and sometimes my dad would just get into it and roll on into the next chapter. <laughs> and so when I hear the the nativity story now, I'm like, oh. Or whenever you just hear have Luke three,
0: Luke three, you're like, oh no, I can't remember this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but it's fun. I love the gospels, but it's many people view them really as like newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. This is the story of Jesus, and then this happened, and then this happened, and people are really upset sometimes to find out that the gospels aren't necessarily in chronological order; mm-hmm. that they are structured thematically to answer questions and to show you Jesus in a particular way. Now, all the events that are described really happened, Mm -hmm. and there is a logical flow to them, but
2: it's an ancient flow and not a modern one. And when you were talking about that before we started recording, it it didn't really register in my mind. If I'm reading Genesis, I can understand that it's just literature, and there's a lot of poetry and all this, that, and the other. But the Gospels to me were just like, this is what happened, this is how it happened, this is why it happened, Mm. next, next. You know, like just this this list of items that Jesus came to do and fulfilled and did all this. But instead, when you understand that it's not just the newspaper article, like you said, it's a whole different perspective. And even tonight, just saying those words out of your mouth, we're kind of saying, why would I do that with the Gospels and not the rest of the Bible? Mm. And, and even all the other you know, letters from Paul and stuff I'm understanding are differently written than the Gospels. And it's like, no, that doesn't make sense. Why would, why would they be set apart other than it's the life of Jesus. Yeah, they
1: are the continuation of a very old tradition, Hmm. and that's the Old Testament. That's what they are. They're not, uh, I know we call it the New Testament, but it isn't as though it's a separate book. It is part of that same story. It's God's redemption and what he's up to and how he has been working in the world. Hmm. And there are places in the Gospels that are subtle that bring back that Old Testament content. And so knowing the story of Moses will enable you at times reading Jesus's story to be like, oh, ho, ho, that reminds me of this place. Or you see what Jesus is doing in the, uh, in the story and you think, ah, oh, this is just like Adam. And we see that there are places in the Old Testament that add color and content and context to the reading of the Gospels. And they're written that way on purpose. It's not an accident that they're laid out that way. I think that these were holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote some great books. But it isn't a, and then, and then, and then. It's Mm -hmm. literature, it's art, and it's beautiful. The problem is, with all art, is that you don't quickly come to the bottom Mm. of what it means. It takes contemplation, it takes meditation, it takes taking the time and really looking at it and engaging with other patterns and other paintings and other modes of art to really engage with this fully and the gospels work on so many levels there's obviously just that straight story what jesus did that he dies on the cross for our sins that he rises from the dead on the third day and calls us to repent and to follow him but there are so many parts of the gospels when you're reading them you wonder i feel like this is part of a bigger story but i don't know what it is Or places where uh, Matthew or someone says, as it says in the prophets, and you're like, I didn't read that part. I skipped out halfway through Exodus and landed here. And so Mm -hmm. I know it's in there, but I don't really know what we're talking Mm -hmm. about. And so part of our hope in doing this particular series in the podcast is to help bridge this gap that you'll find in the ministry of Jesus by giving you context and allowing you to see exactly uh, all of the, the, the deep history. That is connected to a lot of these stories. Uh, And one of the things that you need to look at when you're reading scripture is the setting. The Bible doesn't list things accidentally. It's not just giving you random detail. If it's in there, it's important. The Bible is short on details a lot of times. And if it is giving you specifics, you need to ask yourself, why did you give me that detail? Uh, Like we don't know exactly where Jesus lived. We know it was in Nazareth, but no street address or anything Mm -hmm. like that. We're not really sure exactly what he looked like. Uh, there, There are a thousand things that, you know, if it was a modern biography, you would expect a long extended description of that. The Bible doesn't give it to you. And so when it does bother to tell you that this happened in a particular place, ask yourself, has this place appeared previously in the Bible?
2: And I feel like we do that somewhat today, even. We're talking about how they did in the ancient times, but I was watching a movie uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it's a murder mystery type of thing, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, the, one of the not-so-necessary actors says, where's my red paint? And you're like, Well, mm this isn't about art this isn't about whatever but it, it throws in this for no reason where's my red paint then you find out later when it all comes to fruition is this
0: a haunting in venice
2: no the first one death on the nile Oh, gotcha. but yeah but anyway it comes to that they use the red paint in and i don't want to ruin it now thanks a lot i'm ruining the movie but but anyway they, <laughs> they use the red paint but the point i'm trying to make is they just randomly throw this in and it doesn't make any sense it's just a a, thir- a three second clip and she's like where's my red paint but when you have the understanding and the maturity of, I've seen a murder mystery before, and they're going to throw this in here, same way with the Bible. If it's if it's putting in information that you're like, oh, that doesn't really matter, I'm going to let that go, it's probably what you should be hanging on to because it's going to make sense later on. And if I was smart enough to think of the murder mystery, I would have said that red paint kind of looks like blood, you know, and maybe that's going to oh, play yeah, a factor yeah. down the road and stuff. Um, so no spoilers, but that's what it does. Yeah, setting does that, Not, and it's
1: it's a it's a motive of communicating mystery and wonder and and plot, and it happens in real life like it did in Jesus's lifetime, uh, as it does in in story. But our setting for today is a mountain uh, that you guys are very familiar with. Listeners of this audience are used to us talking about Mount Bashan, uh, Mount Hermon in the land of Bashan, and all of the creepiness attached to it. Uh, But this is a mountain that stands to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And Mount Hermon is a creepy place. It's bound up with ancient stories, stories about the rebellion in the spiritual world when the sons of God abandoned their rightful place and walked among mortal men, fathering children, and they brought giants. I mean, it's great. It's the kind of thing that everyone gets all excited about and everyone has loads of questions. But the setting of that story things that happen in Bashan, things that happen near Mount Hermon are going to prime the audience to say, ah, this probably has something to do with spiritual warfare. Mm. This probably has something to do with God's attack against the rebel host. And Mount Hermon, which is the principal high place in the land of Bashan, is is, a, is thick with stories. It's a land that's associated with giants and evil spirits, and is pretty much an unholy place in the plot. And it's where you associate paganism, the fallen host of heaven. And there is a place in this space, right at the foot of Mount Hermon, that has a sacred spring, a spring that was sacred to the gods of the underworld. And in ancient times, the spring was associated uh, with Baal Gad or Baal Hermon, and it's, it's ominous. It's got an underworld kind of a vibe, death and destruction, and it was a place that they believed was a link, a bridge between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. Hmm. There was a time in Jesus's lifetime when there, there was this beautiful, massive spring that filled up the inside of this cave. And so by looking at it, they thought this is water from deep down below the graves that's coming up and bringing life-giving uh, water to the world. And so from ancient times, people believed this to be a special place, a place that was religious in its, uh, in its atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the 1800s, there was a big earthquake. And as happens with earthquakes, uh, it moves stuff and the cave is still there, but the spring shifted. And if you go there today, uh, the spring is not inside the cave, but it's outside the cave. And that's just because there was a horrible earthquake. But in Jesus's day, this was a place that they associated with the gates of hell. And the Canaanites worshiped Baal there. It was a place associated with the underworld. But when the Greeks came, they really reshaped the thinking of the ancient world. Old religions kind of Uh, disappeared and new ones took their place. The spring and this cave took on a new aspect. A new god became the focus and a new mythology was laid over top of the old. But I think even though the stories changed and the names of the spirits maybe shifted, the powers of that place persisted. They didn't say, okay, we're out, it's time to bring in a new team, and you've been subbed in for this this other god, these are beings who are promoting propaganda. These are beings in rebellion against God, and this is their high place, a place where they're being worshipped. At times, they presented themselves as Baal, and in the times of the Greeks, they presented themselves as a different god, a god called Pan. And so in Canaanite times, Baal was worshipped there. Uh, he was believed... Um, to have an underworld aspect and then to rise again in the spring. But the Greeks are looking at this place, and they associate it with a god of the wilderness, a god that they call
2: Pan. And so, John, I think there's an important point in there, is both of these groups of people are worshiping the same entity, correct, or the same spirit behind it, the same thought of where this power is coming from. They're just using different names. They're spelling it differently.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Is it possible that there's territory struggles amongst demons? Yeah, that's very possible. Um, but anyway, you look at it, it's not as though this is a side that's loyal to their maker.
2: And so I think in, if you want to relay this to today's world and stuff, there's a lot of actions that we do as human beings that are linked to the same type of rebellion against God. And I think we get caught up a lot of times, like, well, no, that action is actually okay. This action is not, and and we're fighting and bickering over, you know, did we do this right? Did we do this wrong? And mm. and, and understanding that the the evil behind it, the rebellion against God, that we always call it a heart desire or you know the way of the heart. But when you have this de- better understanding, that it's like it's it's not just what you desire, but it's is this okay with God? Is this rebelling against the the desires and understanding that God is trying to give to you? when you're praying and reading with him. And so that to me is a different mindset that I've gone over the past couple of years. It's like, I'm not sitting here trying not to say the wrong words, not to do the mm-hmm. wrong actions. You know, God's not up there as a police officer, like, no, oh, you were speeding a little bit, so you better slow it down. <laughs> and so that's really been a change for me. It's like, it doesn't matter what you call the evil. If, you're, if your intent is to do the evil, that's when God gets involved.
1: Yeah, and it's important to recognize the people worshiping there, uh, they're not neutrals they are engaging in the worship of these false gods of these they're real Good like point. these are these are beings who are supernatural in their in their essence and are powerful but they are enemies of our maker of our rightful king and so this being presented itself as pan and it has its own mythology um they believed that he was the son of hermes uh the romans called him uh Mercury. Uh, Other myths say he's the son of Apollo, but whichever group you, or mythology you you take, Pan was believed to be a twisted, almost human son of a spiritual being and a mortal woman. This has very Genesis 6 connections, Mm. of uh, a Nephilim-type character. That's who they were worshipping in this place, uh, which they called uh, Peneus, or uh, Caesarea Philippi. And so this mountain is believed to be the the place of the descent of the sons of God in Genesis 6. And so long before Pan's story came around, the Canaanites and the Israelites believed this to be a place where the gods, the angels, the little G gods, slept with the daughters of men and and rebelled against God and brought about the Nephilim. It's striking to me that the God that's worshipped there is Nephilim-like in his description, that mm-hmm. he is part man and part not. He's part goat and part human. You've probably seen pictures of Pan. He looks like, a, the word is a satyr. Mm-hmm. He's um, a fawn-like. I know, in, in Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. I Tumnus. I know, I feel so <laughs> bad for yeah, Mr. Yeah, but he Tumnus. was sketchy for a while. He just was redeemed, um, and that was okay. Nice recovery, yeah. Mr. Tumnus. Uh, it was. We're very glad of your decisions, mm-hmm. Mr. Tumnus. Uh, and so this is a place that is connected with his story. And so by placing it here, it it brings with it all of the connections to this Genesis 6 mentality. Now, Pan was associated with the wilderness. He's a a shepherd's god. He's a god who is um, very interested in sexual abuse, uh, in spiritual possession, and terror. The word panic comes from his name. He's a beast. He's half goat, half man, and they were offering sacrifices to this being in the cave, they would throw bloody carcasses into the waters to appease this god. And the waters of the stream flowed out of the cave and down into the swamps north of the Sea of Galilee and would later on turn into uh, the Jordan River. It's one of the tributaries that's going to form the Jordan River. And so Pan is not only associated with the, the wilderness, but another image that's uh, associated with Pan is his instrument, uh, a pan flute. Maybe you've seen these. They're made of reeds. And Rosemary, when you and I were there... Like Peter Pan's like flute? Like Peter Pan, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's named after this character, uh, this wild, um, uncontrolled youth kind of a thing. Uh, but when we were there, the it's a very beautiful stream, and all along it are reeds.
0: Yeah, it was very pretty. I remember we ate lunch there, and it was hard sometimes to get into the whole like you know demonic vibe because it was just so beautiful there mm. um is this is his little flu. it's kind of almost like um oh it almost goes at an angle is that uh-huh. right like he's yep. holding it and it goes at an angle and it's made out of reeds is that the the myth about um oh not Hera what's her name that he uh,
1: yeah, he's trying to to rape a nymph. Mm. Yeah, is what happens. He's and she he's, turns
0: into a reed, and
1: so she's running away from him. And her sisters yeah. come to her rescue, right. and they turn her into a reed. And he's not sure exactly which reed it is, but he knows it's one of these. And so he takes them all, and he captures this this nymph and turns her into this reed that he plays for his own joy. For it's it's a very dark. Mm twisted story.
0: As most stories about the gods are.
1: And, and Pan is especially this way. He's not a happy-go-lucky fellow. Uh, his desires are gross. His moral compass is broke. Hmm. He is the being who does that which is right in his own eyes. And so the reeds of the streams have special significance to the worship of Pan. There's another god who's worshipped there, and her name is Echo, uh, her story is really sad, uh, but it's also associated with romance between spiritual beings and humans. She falls in love with Narcissus, uh, who is only in love with himself; hence the name narcissist. Uh, and so there's this this really sad story where she, her voice is stripped from her, and the only thing she's capable of saying is the last thing that someone has shouted, and that's where we get the word echo from. It goes back to this uh, to this myth. Hmm. And so this place is associated with these three things. It's associated with the god Pan. It's associated with the goddess or the nymph uh, Echo. And it's associated with the stream and the reed beds that are there. And this place is is a real place. This spring has had many names throughout the years. The Romans called it uh, Panaeus after the god Pan or Panaeum. Uh, when Herod the great had all of his kids. You obviously name them all Herod. Uh, but uh, one of them in particular, he names Herop, Herod Philippus or Herod Phil uh, on there. And he decides, you know, I'm going to rename this place after myself and Caesar. And so he renames Peneus, Caesarea Philippi. This is a new name for a very old place. Mount Hermon is the mountain that overshadows this spring. This place is at the foot of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is a word, it means consecrated. It was not a place uh, that a nice rabbi should be visiting with his impressionable disciples. And so when you're reading this story, one of the questions you ought to ask yourself is, why is Jesus there? What's the whole point of bringing your disciples to a place like Caesarea Philippi? Why did he choose to purposefully walk days out of the normal pathway that most Jewish people were taking away from Jerusalem to this evil place.
0: This reminds me of when I'm teaching the kids geography, any kids, that they everybody kind of like yawns a little bit when we do geography. And I say, map work is really important because if you don't know where something happened, then you don't know why it happened. And I feel like the setting of the story is that applies there, too it's a good question. Why is Jesus taking his boys to this place? Well, you have, yeah, place you have to, to know what this place is for it really to matter to the story. So where it happens is why it happens.
1: Yeah. I think that's where it happens is why. Happens. That's good. It It is to telegraph what's happening. This part of the story has to do with the gods. It has to do with Pan. It has to do with Echo. It has to do with the gods of the mountain It has to do with the rebellion that happened in in Genesis chapter 6. And so when we begin reading in the Gospel of Matthew, and it just drops Caesarea Philippi, you may be tempted to assume, well, that's probably like right next door to Nazareth, maybe it's not a name that we're familiar with. But knowing the background and the history of this place, I hope, is going to add color and context to your understanding of what's happening. And so, Martin, you said you really wanted to read this part. yeah. And so if you pick it up in verse 13.
2: Sure, thank you. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is?
1: Now, this is a weird place to go to ask this question. He could have asked it in Capernaum. He could have asked it in Jerusalem. He's gone to a place where these pagan gods are worshipped, and he says, who am
2: I? And keep going. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ.
1: Now, there's a lot of argument among Christians about what does it mean that Peter is the rock. You're going to be very upset with me, but I have no interest in talking about that in this episode. Uh, <laughs> stay a, tuned. Yeah, for stay tuned. That's, a, that's another episode. What I do want to do is ask yourself, why this setting and why this response? What he does Whether you believe that Peter is the rock or the statement that Peter makes is the rock or he's talking about the physical rocks that are there, I don't care. The essence of this is I am at war with Satan and the host of darkness. Mm -hmm. I have come and there is war between me and them. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. Whatever you loose shall be loosed. This is intense language.
2: Does it kind of say tell you something about Peter here though? Like he would know where they're at, right? Peter is like this oh, I, is not Oh, I think Peter is pretty uncomfortable
1: territory. being there.
2: Right? And and Jesus is basically going into enemy territory and saying, "Who's the man?" right? Yes. Who, who's number 1? Uh-huh. And Peter's like, "I really hope it's you." <laughs> That's what I'm going to answer, right? <clears throat> but it kind of tells you, you know, a little bit more about him that he's able to stand up in the midst of all of this horror, terror, whatever you want to say, and say, No, Jesus is king with air. And it's like, man, to, to be able to say that, we, we talk about persecution over here in the West, like we actually you know, have this type of stuff. But when we are in the midst of the fire, can we stand up and say, No, Jesus is king and know that he's gonna have our back, no matter where we're at, hmm. in the same way that Peter does it here. That that to me is is pretty telling This is a
1: brave thing because they are in the belly of the beast. Hmm. And they are proclaiming the identity of Jesus. He says, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the son of the living God. I believe you're who we've been waiting for this whole time. Mm. I think you're the new Adam. I think you're the new Moses. I think you're God in the on, on inner flesh. This is, it. this is happening. And he's looking around at these pagan gods and he's not afraid. And he says, these things shall pass away. It's interesting to me that Jesus chooses to move directly into a stronghold of the enemy to proclaim his identity.
0: And he tells Peter that um he says on this rock I will build my church. <laughs> would they have known what a church was?
1: Oh uh, yeah, they would have. Okay. But they wouldn't have thought what you think of as a church. <laughs> okay. Uh, the word church means the called out assembly, the the gathering. I I'm gathering my people.
0: So they would have that would have clicked with them. So then why in verse 20 does he tell them to tell no one he's Christ when he just, like you said, proclaimed in the belly of the beast that he is Christ and he's here. Why would he have told them not to tell people that?
1: Well, first of all, if they really were supposed to tell nobody, uh, Matthew really messes up because he (laughs) wrote it down in the gospel for everyone to know. But there is an element in which Jesus seems to be saying, this is not for right now. This is for something else. But it also makes me wonder what if the statement was not f- for the disciples to run around and start preaching? But what if there were other ears that were listening? What mm-hmm. if there were supernatural powers who were gathered around and very interested in the fact that the Son of God had walked directly into their fortress?
2: So this wasn't for humans. I'm I- not it, sure it it was. why he's making no, this No, he's decision. saying, listen,
1: wow. I strictly charge the disciples, tell no one about this. It's going to become obvious. This is the wow. proclamation of who
2: they are. Does that have something to do with the transfiguration when they oh, go yes. up there? Yes, that's exactly what And it has then he to says, Hey, it. by the way, let's keep this under your hat kind of idea. Yeah, there's this identity mm. of where it says
1: that from this place they then go up a high mountain. Remember, this is at the foot of Mount Hermon. This is the mountain that's described. That's if, if you Take a picture of this, it makes total sense. You're like, okay, this is at the foot of the mountain, they then go up the mountain. And it's there that we find Jesus' identity, not proclaimed, but his identity is manifested. It's made blatantly obvious. This is God in the flesh. This is the Lord that was at Sinai. Come again to his people. So let's take a look at Matthew 17, verses 1 through 3.
0: And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him.
1: Now, I think Peter would have been surprised. He obviously is. But that's not who he expected to be lurking on Mount Hermon. Mm. this is a bad place. This is a place connected with the enemy. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. He's walked up and he begins to shine with light. He's showing the glory. And all of a sudden, two of the greatest prophets of human history are right there with him. There is a very real sense. Something happened in the supernatural world here. It's It wasn't like, you know, they got beamed down like on the Enterprise. And they were just like, you know, beam me down, Scotty. And all of a sudden they materialized there. There seems to have been something happening here that Jesus has preached the gospel of the kingdom at the roots of the mountain and from the tops of the mountain. He has been to the underworld and up to where the heavens meet the sky and the mountain itself. This is symbolic. And an ancient reader would have recognized this as a power play. This isn't Jesus going where people like him. This isn't Jesus preaching to the choir. This is an act of war against the darkness. Mm. And because he goes to this place, to Mount Hermon, it has special significance to the
2: past and to other stories. And so sometimes— And you know what that kind of reminds me of when you're talking about that, wherever Jesus has gone— and I'm just thinking about it in our daily lives when, you're, when we're talking about, you know, oh, Jesus is always with you, and that's what I tell my son whenever he gets scared and, and whatnot. And it's like, yeah, that's really cute, and we automatically go to the Jonah passage. But it's like, Jonah would have read this stuff or experienced it, maybe even what we're talking about. It's like Jesus went into the underworld and proclaimed who he was. He went right. to the highest mountain and proclaimed who he was. And you think you can just go to another city and get away from him. And yeah, if only I could get to Tarshish. <laughs> right, and it's like, but I think we do the same thing today, and, and it's we do it in two different ways. One is like, well, I don't really want to do that, so I'm going to go away, and that's the Jonah effect. But also, we say, man, I'm, I'm in such a deep hole, or I'm in such a spot. Like, you don't understand my struggle. You don't understand what's going on at my church. You don't understand what's going on in my house. It's like, Jesus can't get to that level. It's like, did you read the same thing when you're talking about this right here? I mean, you're saying it very eloquently, but even if you read what it says, Jesus goes anywhere— into the Anywhere depths he of wants. it, that's right. And he proclaims who he is, and I think that's really powerful for people that are listening and people that read this. Is like, Jesus isn't just this genie that's going to be able to grant your every wish. He can do whatever he wants with what he created, and he rules over it. And it's like, man, that is so much stronger of a, of a way to, to view this than just saying, "Well, remember when Jonah tried to run and he was unable to?" It's like. That, that would be in my podcast, right? Like, this is the little kid's part. No, no, I do Now this is the grown-up part here. And
1: that's really what we... I mean, we've talked about this a lot, Martin, when we were doing the <laughs> territorial spirits, mm-hmm. that idea of, that God is not bound by the territory. Mm-hmm. He seems to delight in taking the fight to them of, of redeeming spaces and mm-hmm. bringing his presence where it's not welcome. And Jesus delights in doing this. I love when he sails across the sea... And there's this possessed guy in the Mm -hmm. mountains, which, by the way, is on the edge of Bashan. And he comes charging down, and the demons are like, what are you doing over here? Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to be over here. Have you come to torment us before the time? And you get this idea that Jesus was like, yeah, I just wanted to stop over here let (laughs) you know. I'm well aware of what's going on. I'm going to fix this guy, and then I'm going to head out. But I wanted you to know I can go where I want. Mm. This is mine. I've not come for you to give me anything.
0: This reminds me of Psalm 139 a yeah. lot. If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. I make my bed in hell. Behold, you are there.
2: But think about in all throughout history how human beings have tried to duplicate what Jesus is doing here. right? Yeah, I'm, I'm the ruler of my nation, but I'm going to go wherever I want and still be king. And that's where you have people trying to take over the world. And if you've ever seen Pinky in the Brain, right, that's what they do every what night. What are we doing tonight? We're going to take over the world. Yeah. And so it, just that, I think it's kind of ingrained into us with the sin nature or whatever you want to say as humans is that we want to be king not only where we are, but where everybody else is. Well, too. that's
1: the two trees. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was mankind saying, I will define what is good and evil. I know. My will be done. And with Jesus, you find the king of kings, the God of gods, that he is the one that is what we pretend to be, Mm -hmm. that this truly is. I love when uh, Jesus is asked, you know, should we be paying taxes to Caesar? And Jesus asks for a coin. And he says, whose image is this? I say, well, that's Caesar. And Jesus replies, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And the implication is, where is the image of God? Mm -hmm. If Caesar, Caesar can have the coin, but God has made the men that this belongs to the Lord and all the things of this earth are his by right. And the gospel stories are a war story. They're a story of the rightful king. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity in a gorgeous way. The rightful king has landed and is making tracks to defeat the enemy. And from this point on, from the Mount of Transfiguration, from Mount Hermon, he goes straight to Jerusalem. And is crucified. That's not an accident. That's not him losing. He went there to stir the hornet nest. He went there to kick them in the teeth and then see what would happen. And they <laughs> fell right into his trap, which is what he sets for them. And so sometimes when you're reading scripture, the, the the overall plot can be lost because we get so focused in on gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that we fail to, to associate the past uh, context into the story. And, and when we're reading scripture, the wording, the places of these stories can trigger memories of other passages, and we call these correlations, a correlating text. These are purposeful connections in the text. And at times, reading one story helps us understand another, or it adds depth to the reading. Or sometimes knowing about the history of a place can add coloring and help you understand, Ah, oh, I think God may have been kind of making fun of the enemy here. There's a polemic at work. And so does Mount Hermon appear in the Old Testament? Yes, it does. Do you think that matters? I think it does. So today, I'd like to examine one of these texts. We're going to look at Psalm 68. This is a cool psalm, and it has to do with this war between the mountain of God and the mountain of It symbolizes darkness and Satan's kingdom. Hmm. And so this is a psalm written by David, and it begins
2: powerfully in verse 1. Would one of you guys pick it up? God shall arise, his enemies oh. shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Okay, so we've got a psalm
1: <clears throat> that I've already let the cat out of the bag. It's going to be about Mount Hermon, and it starts out this way. Arise, O God, scatter your enemies. Those who hate him shall flee before him, what is Jesus doing when he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration? Mm-hmm. What, why are, are Moses and Elijah like hanging out on top of this place? This is supposed to be like Sauron's evil tower, and all of a sudden the good guys are there. This, this is a surprise, but it's not a surprise if you've read the Psalms that God is at war with the enemy, he doesn't allow them the peace that they want, he is bringing his judgment before them. Keep going, verse 2.
2: As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away, as wax melts before the fire. So the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God, and they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord.
1: Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. Pan was a god of the wild places. Baal was a god of the wild places. The pagan uh, goat demons that are talked about in Deuteronomy are of the wild places. This is God saying, this is not your space. He says he rides through them. This is his by right. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't that the world belongs to Satan. He's a rebel. He has unjustly claimed territory. But this belongs to the Lord, and he's going to come and to take it back I would love to have known what happened in the spiritual world when they saw Jesus slowly walking closer and closer to Caesarea Philippi. Mm. All of these stories, like, surely he's not coming here. You think he's coming here? He looks (laughs) like he's coming here. I think he's on his way. And all of a sudden, there must have been confusion among the enemy host. What was happening? Mm. There is immense power that's proclaimed here. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Keep going.
2: Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation.
1: Now, if I had to describe Pan, I would not describe him as father of the fatherless, protector of widows, God in his holy habitation. I would describe him as super creepy goat guy demanding (laughs) sacrifices and is just an Like this is is, their polar opposites. Jesus is what these things can never be. He is showing wholeness, whereas they are nothing but a hole, an emptiness. This cave that the spring flows out of, even though it's beautiful, Mm. it's not able to truly bring healing to the world. And so these people are there worshiping the wrong thing. Keep going.
2: God settles the solitary in his home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness.
1: So a minute ago, he was riding through the deserts. Now he's marching through the wilderness. And I think you have to connect that back to the Exodus story, mm-hmm. to the Moses concept. All of this is linked. Now get into verse 8. Rosemary, will you pick it up there?
0: The earth quaked and the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished, and your flock found a dwelling in it.
1: This is kind of a neat text, because there is a God that the Canaanites worshipped who is intimately connected to rain. And in the Old Testament, Elijah has a showdown on top of another mountain with a God called Baal about rain. And Baal can bring no rain. He's not capable of bringing salvation to the people. We remember that Caesarea Philippi was a place holy to Baal in ancient times. But later, the Greeks worshipped the god of shepherds, this uh, goat god. Look what it says in verse 10. Read verse 10 for me one more time.
0: Your flock found a dwelling in it.
1: Your flock. Pan is not the shepherd, even though he has his flute, even though he is part goat, even though he is this Nephilim-type being. It is Jesus who is the true shepherd, and so I don't think David is writing this psalm and thinking, I had a vision about Pan and I'm going to jot these things down. But reading them now with the understanding of what Jesus would do later, I can't help but think about God's victory over these things. And so I don't think the author here is is telling the future. But what I do see is the transfiguration story, the proclamation of Christ at Caesarea Philippi is, is, is being... Uh, enriched by this passage in the Psalms. The idea is there. Keep going. Let's look at verse 11.
0: In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold.
1: Though you lie among the sheepfolds, there again is that shepherd Motif. Did you catch the part that talked about a voice?
0: The, where the women are right. announcing the news? Yeah, ah. the, the kingdom
1: is coming. The kingdom mm-hmm. is coming. The Lord is here. And it reminds me, again, I don't think this is saying that this is about this, but it reminds me of that other goddess who was worshipped there, of Echo, whose voice oh, was sure. stripped from her. And all she could do is repeat what she had heard before. That's not who our God is. He's not a parrot repeating what he heard last. It's not an unknown echo in a cave. The voice of our God has inspired thousands to shout his praise and to sing of the kingdom that is coming. Let's look at verse 14.
0: When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever.
1: So when David is writing this, or whoever was writing this, they set up an image in which there are two mountains at war with each other. One of them is Jerusalem. The other is Mount Bashan. That's Mount Hermon, the same place that Jesus goes to at Caesarea Philippi. This is a stare-down. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. And so Jesus' disciples knew this psalm. They understood that this was a place associated with rivalry, with an enemy. And it's laid out pretty clearly here in this text that Bashan, the mountain of Bashan, is seen as the rival to Jerusalem. Other places, it calls this Babylon, or it calls it Egypt. But it's not talking just about a physical spot. It's talking about more than that, this supernatural reality that's swept up in this. And the military language is going to continue. Look at verse 17.
0: "'The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary.' You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men.
1: That's an interesting line. All of a sudden, I'm reminded that this is the God of Sinai. Sinai is in Jerusalem. It's in the sanctuary. What was holy about that place is still holy today. And then it goes into this, this, this warfare language. Not only is Jesus fighting, but Jesus has taken captives. This line shows up in the New Testament where Jesus, or excuse me, where the apostle is talking about, you have taken captives. You have taken captivity captive. You have led a host of captives in your train. This is what happens at the crucifixion. Jesus rises from the dead. Death is defeated. The powers of Satan are broken. And the host that was celebrating their power at Caesarea Philippi suddenly is replaced. Caesarea Philippi is nothing without the story of Jesus now. People don't go there to worship Pan. They go there to remember what Jesus did. Mm. That's why it's important. They've been replaced, their story taken away, their power broken. And we got into this in the territorial spirits, but it isn't just something you see in the Old Testament. It's something you see everywhere in the Gospels. Keep reading.
0: Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up and God is our salvation. Yeah, keep going. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death.
1: Okay, so remember, what kind of place is Caesarea Philippi? It's a place associated with the underworld. And Jesus is moving to the cross. He's going to bring victory over death. He's going to find a way to defeat the enemy. And you see this in verse 21.
2: But God will strike the heads of the enemies... The hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord says, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. So this is how you know it's not just talking about the physical
1: location. Okay, I want to show you this. God is going to strike the heads of his enemies. That has a very Adam and Eve sound to it. The serpent will bruise your heel, but you will crush its head. It calls it a hairy crown. Serpents don't have hairy heads. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. But this is talking about the, the head of a, of an, of a warrior. Um, Pan would have had you know, a hairy head. You know He's kind of a hairy fellow. Uh, but, but I don't think that's what it's talking about here. It's talking about all of the enemies of God. He's going to crush you. But look at what it says in verse 22. I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. Guess where Bashan is not? The sea. It's not in the sea. It's not even really by the sea. It's the mountains, which is kind of the unsea, just saying. This is a, a picture, though, of chaos in the ancient world. The sea was associated with evil, associated with the powers of darkness, and springing up out of that cave in Caesarea Philippi was a spring that they believed was the gates of hell, this underworld connection. Water was intimately connected to this story. And so Jesus isn't saying, yeah, I've got a couple people I'm going to pick up in Bashan, and I got Jonah still swimming around in the bottom of the sea, I'm going to grab him. This is talking symbolically about God's victory over chaos itself. And so is this psalm about what Jesus is going to do in the Gospels? Well, not one-to-one, but what it does is it adds understanding to what Jesus is doing at the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm -hmm. Let's keep going. Verse 23.
2: That you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your possession is seen, O God. Wait a minute. Can you think
1: of anybody who was eaten by dogs?
0: Uh, Jezebel.
1: Jezebel. And earlier on, we had talking about uh, uh, Moses and Sinai. Who are the two guys that show up on top of the mountain?
2: Elijah. Elijah and
1: Moses. Moses makes sense, the Sinai connection. Elijah and Jezebel, she's the enemy of... The, he's saying, listen, I, I win. I defeat my enemies. They don't stand before me. Look at what I have done. And look at what I'm going to be doing. Keep going.
2: Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins play tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. Or congregation the Lord owe you who are Israel's fountain. Of Israel's fountain. Again,
1: this has a very real connection to anyone who has seen Bashan, who has gone to Caesarea Philippi. The dominant view is rushing water. When you go to Israel, though, or or to Jerusalem, its spring is less spectacular. No one is really wowed by uh, Hezekiah's tunnel. And if they tell you they are, they're lying, okay? <laughs> it is not amazing. It is a hole in the ground that water runs through. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not of that same grandeur that you see there. But looks aren't always what matters. There is an unseen reality that's being played up against each other. The fountain of Jerusalem is not the Kidron. The fountain of Jerusalem is the Lord. Hmm. The one who brings victory is the Messiah. This is presenting God as a conquering king, as bringing the people back into his city. Keep reading. Verse 27. We're getting to the end.
2: There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah and their throng, the princes of Zebulon and the princes of Naphtali. Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war.
1: Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds is an interesting line. Because in the Old Testament, we get this idea that when the Bible talks about demons, it often talks about them in animal form. Not that they are animals, but it's a way of describing them, talking about them. Even the Greeks, in their descriptions of Pan, linked him to an animal lurking among the reeds, this predator pursuing and chasing people. When the psalmist is talking here, even without knowing the exact stories that Satan is going to weave, it's interesting, Satan doesn't seem to be all that creative. Uh, He seems to just branch off into the same problems each time. But the Lord is saying, listen, I'm not afraid of the beasts that prowl among the reeds. I can walk right into your stronghold and walk right out again. You cannot touch me. You see this time and time again that the Lord didn't have his life taken from him. He laid it down. Let's keep going.
0: Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice.
1: There it is again, the voice. Keep going.
0: Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God.
1: He's saying, listen, the enemies of God are going to come and stretch out their hands to him. The nations will return to God. Psalm 82, verse 8 says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is a thread that isn't just in Psalm 82. It isn't just in Deuteronomy 32. It flows through the whole scripture. That God is bringing about the salvation of mankind. And not just the Jewish people, but all of the children of Adam. When I read this verse now, when I read this passage in the Psalms, I have questions, I have thoughts about it, and I notice that there are similarities to things that I know about the gospel story. Now, whether the author knew them, I don't think he did. But it's interesting to me that when I, who know what Jesus does in this place, read and I think, wow, God, you did more than they ever thought you were going to do. By going to that place and doing what you did, saying what you did, proclaiming the gospel at the roots of the mountain and from the tops of the mountain and bringing your war council and showing here's Elijah, here's Moses, I am that I am, and God speaks from the heavens. This is my beloved son, Peter, be quiet. He's got things to say. This is the prophet to listen to. And then the march to the cross. This is this is God at war with the darkness, and it ends with the defeat of the darkness. It ends with prisoners taken and powers overthrown. It ends with God rising up and judging the earth, for he shall judge all the nations. And so when you find correlations in the Bible, I'm hesitant to say this means this, because the Bible doesn't explicitly say it. What I do say is this reminds me of this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think it it can get us into trouble when we claim things that the Bible isn't claiming. But I do think it's foolish to pretend that you don't see a pattern and to say to myself, man, that's cool how God specifically put that in there. And it it just, I can't help but think about Mm -hmm. his victory in this other time and other place. It's good. It's something (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I think uh, that'll be it for the day. That's our thoughts. you guys have any final thoughts to wrap it up?
0: I don't right now, but I'm sure after we get done, I'll have a bunch. Oh, this good. Is, this Maybe, is something to chew on for a long time.
1: Yeah. Maybe you guys have got them out there. Maybe you think I'm off base, and that's okay. I definitely know Jesus is the winner, that nothing that was dwelling at Caesarea Philippi is a rival to my God, that he mm-hmm. is the Lord of lords, the God of gods mighty and awesome.